0: Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. Today, today's sermon is called Better Than That. And I'm going to be stomping on some toes, I'm afraid. And let's just pray that the Lord will help us to receive it as the Spirit has intended these words. So let's pray. Lord, as, as we come to your word and and I try to lay it out according to your guidance. And I ask, Lord, that you would plow up our hearts and make us ready to receive it and be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ to your glory and for your purposes. We ask it in in his name. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Better than that. On the wall, above the sanctuary platform behind me, here at KPC, is a mural of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Namely, and it's written in calligraphy, Namely, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I'm sure many of you know that by heart or almost by heart. It was painted on canvas around 1990, 1989, 1990, by Leanne Fay, applied, as far as I can tell, with wallpaper paste to the organ pipe projections. And from time to time, it's been covered with other slogans of the moment, uh, as it is now. And since I arrived at KPC, a lot of church members have been tugging at my sleeve asking me to uncover it. Now, it seems especially relevant right now. I mean, American culture is in free fall. Healthy boundaries are overthrown. Sexual morals are disdained. Basic gender biology and psychology are questioned. Fetal life and basic human dignity are denied and disregarded. Existing racial and cultural divides are heightened and exploited for short-sighted political ends. The violent are excused as victims, as those entrusted with the good order of society are demonized. One side blames the social structures for being unjust and self-serving. The other blames the rabble-rousers for being anarchistic and criminal. But everybody agrees that the system is broken and rife with, well, sin. You know, and on that point at least, We can agree that everybody is right. Now, of course, we wrestle with the pandemic. COVID-19 is not a hoax. It's a highly contagious virus from bats and bat-borne diseases are always unpredictable. They thrive in dark places close, crowded spaces, kind of like this. (laughs) This is our bat cave, by the way. Bats would love this place if we let them in. Just saying. But epidemics are nothing new. You know, bubonic plague or Spanish influenza, they appear, they disrupt life, they devastate the populace, they vanish to reappear centuries later. They were commonly attributed to the judgment of God. The very verse here on our sanctuary wall actually begins in verse 13, when I send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, and so on. So it would seem to be the right moment to uncover our hidden passage. If only. If only. Today I want to look closely at this promise of healing and the conditions that God sets and why I have been hesitant to uncover and display 2 Chronicles 7, 14 without some serious caveats. So bear with me. We're going to begin with Solomon's prayer, dedicating the new temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, the chapter before. Now, I would love if we had unlimited time to read that whole chapter before I get into it. Uh, if you have a Bible, you might want to keep your finger in it or at least take some notes so you can go back and look it over. Uh, but I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long. And my sermon will be long enough as it is. I'm sure you'd, you, you, all of you would agree on that too. Uh, So we'll start at verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth keeping covenant in steadfast love with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. This sets the keynote for God's covenant faithfulness for all that follows. This whole thing we're going to be talking about is all about covenant. Covenant. Well, who is God? God is the one who makes and keeps covenants. Covenants were only made by someone with more power Extending an offer to someone with less power. You know, uh, a lender would make a covenant with a borrower. A king would make a covenant with his subjects. God makes covenants with his people. As the matchless God who rules the cosmos in sovereign majesty... God alone offers covenants. And God is uniquely faithful in His chesed. You'll remember we discussed that word before a few few weeks back. His chesed, His steadfast love to uphold His end of the bargain always. Always. Now Solomon... As he's praying to dedicate this temple that he's just completed, he knows that this God cannot actually be contained in his puny little earthly building. So he does not ask God to come and take up residence there. But he only asks that God from his high, lofty heavenly throne might keep one eye on those who pray there and one ear cocked to hear their petitions. We see that verse 21. Hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. May you hear from heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. Forgive the sin of the people. This note runs through the rest of his prayer in seven petitions, which are all mostly built the same way. I'm going to read one of them. I had not planned to, but I'll do it anyway, just so you'll kind of get an idea as I talk about them. Second Chronicles. Come on. We're in chapter 6. And I'm just, I'm practically picking one at random. Verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated by their enemies because they have sinned against you. And if they turn back and acknowledge or confess your name and pray to you here in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and return them to this land you gave to them and to their ancestors. That's one of the petitions. First, in each of these petitions, generally, there are a couple of exceptions, of course. But it, there's a, it starts with each one starts with a crisis: uh, military defeat, drought, famine, plague. They're carried away into exile. Something horrible happens to the people. Each one is considered God's, God's judgment for breaking the covenant. That it's God's rap on the knuckles to make sure you sit up and listen. Then, second, the second part is if the if, if folks wake up and get right with God again. And there are listed, scattered through these things, and I want you to notice this, four conditional acts of reflection and contrition, which vary somewhat in wording, but not really in spirit or in intent. So it kind of boils down to this list that the if as the people turn again to God, if they pray, that's five times. And five of these petitions specifically says pray. If they pray, if they confess God's name, that's twice. If they plead with God for mercy, that's in here three times. And if they repent... And that's variously described as repenting or turning from sin or turning to the Lord, but a turning around. And that's in here three times. Now remember this list. Pray, confess the Lord's name, plead with God for mercy, and repent or turn. We're going to come back to this list in just a moment. So there's the crisis, There's the, if the people turn. And then third, there's the prayer, may God then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of his people. And this is a set refrain in every one of them, in every one of these petitions. That God will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and then seeing their repentance and forgiving their sin, God might provide relief appropriate to whatever the judgment was. Now, Solomon's prayer is built like a covenant. It's built like a covenant, but it is not a covenant with God because only God can offer a covenant. Solomon can only come hat in hand The request to be considered for a covenant relationship. Solomon is coming here like a beggar asking God, God, I, I can't tell you, but can you make a deal? I can't make a deal with you, but can you make a deal with me? Solomon can suggest terms, but it's merely suggestion. It's merely his prayer request. You see, Solomon is not in a place where he can offer a covenant to God. Now, as Solomon completes his prayer, God deigns to acknowledge the place. and set it apart as a place for His holiness. So, fire con- fire descends from heaven. It consumes the offering in a flash, as God's glory, His kabod, His weightiness, settles upon and fills the temple to the point where the priests are driven out. They can't take it anymore. It's too much, and they they flee outside the temple. And once, of course, once the priests are, are outside, the worship service continues outside with lavish sacrifices and with choir and, and brass ensembles for a full week. And then the public festival lasts for a whole other week after that. Now, that's what I call... a a church service. Now it's only after all the hubbub has settled down again, so we're talking over two weeks later at least, after all all the hubbub has died down, things get back to the new normal. That's when God speaks to Solomon's prayer. Now, that God should wait weeks, perhaps, is not surprising, because words of the Lord that are delivered or received in times of high excitement or enthusiasm or times of high stress are very undependable, rarely dependable because the human subconscious is perfectly capable of inventing or manufacturing its own words of the Lord that say just what we want to hear or what we expect. I don't know if you found that to be the case. If you've ever been listening for words of the Lord when you thought you desperately needed one, The words you did get may not really have been from the Lord. We have to be very careful then when we are most desperate to hear it, when we want to hear it, because we are very likely to tell ourselves or to influence others to tell us what we really want to hear. That's just a very human thing. We might not even be aware that when we are making it up ourselves. It's when things have calmed down, above all, when you are not expecting it anymore, that the surest and truest words of the Lord are spoken, when it it comes as a surprise. And to make it more certain, God speaks to Solomon, this time in a dream. You know, it's a form of divine communication which you cannot consciously control or manipulate. Uh, You can't influence. And the word is not influenced by some prophet with an agenda or by yourself. It's sort of out of your control. And you know this word has to be from God. So God waits until the word can be sure and unquestioned. So let's read 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 16 and then jump to 19 through 20. Starting at verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there for all time. But... If you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from this land that I've given you and this house which I've consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. You see, now God offers his covenant. This is what we call a conditional suzerainty covenant. Conditional suzerainty covenant. That is, God, as a king or as a sovereign, unilaterally extends his contract to Solomon and the people with conditions. If they do this, then God will do that. If they don't, then there are consequences. That is, if leader and people will heed the commandments and worship God alone, God will fulfill His promises and be available as a fount of mercy for them. If though, if they jettison the commandments of God and run after fake gods, the royal line will come to an end, the temple will be demolished, the people will be deported from the land of promise. Now, the priest who committed this story to writing felt acutely the poignancy of this covenant. In his day, the people had abandoned the Lord, and the severest punitive clauses in the contract had gone into effect. The kingdom of Judah had been trampled by the Babylonians, The temple burned, Jerusalem practically razed to the ground, the people taken to Babylon. You know, you break your automobile contract, what happens? It gets repossessed. When Israel breaks her contract, she gets dispossessed. Now, God's covenant, His covenant promises, speaks specifically to what Solomon prayed for. Namely, if the people sin and tragedy strikes, but they do this or that, Lord, do forgive their sin and then remedy the situation. And God's answer mostly agrees with Solomon's prayer. Mostly. Mostly. Solomon prays this. If the people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, that is, in In God's covenant, this is also there, although it goes without saying, yes, all people sin. If we sin, it's not really if we sin, it's when we sin against you. Because sin is a fact of human life, and God knows that best of all. We do not naturally know or want to do the will of God. And even if we think we want to do the will of God, it doesn't mean we really know it or get it right. It doesn't mean we even really want to do it. We want to do what we hope the will of God is or what we wish the will of God was, and that's just human nature. We are, without exception, predisposed to do what god does not want. You can read about that in Romans chapter 7. Even when we do the right thing, we have mixed motives. This is what what the reformers called and especially at the council of dort called total depravity. It means to, that you personally and I are totally depraved. Now it doesn't mean that we're necessarily a really awful horrible sinner well it does but we're all equally horrible sinners it means that every nook and cranny of our thinking and our will is slightly twisted just slightly warped so it's like shooting the word for sin in the Greek actually comes from archery when you shoot an arrow, arrow and, and you just can't hit the target. Because, you see, the problem is our arrows are slightly warped, and you can't hit a target with a warped arrow. Trust me, I've tried. And that's the nature of, that's our sin nature. It means every aspect of individual behavior is slightly warped and disposed to selfishness, really, self-centeredness and sin, it's in our very DNA. But one of the things I want you to notice, Solomon's prayer and God's covenant acknowledge that there is something beyond your individual sin and my individual sin, there is such a thing as corporate sinfulness. Now, it means we the people do bad things. It's hard for Americans to take to heart, steeped as we are in our tradition and ideology of individualism and self-determination. You see, in God's eyes, even if you did not personally participate in it, you are not thereby immune from sin. As part of a people, as part of a nation, you share in the group guilt of others, not everyone in Judah broke covenant with God. But everyone was equally adjudged guilty and deported into exile. Do you see what I'm saying? There is a group sin that all share in so that we all share in the consequences. That is, in God's eyes... You and I as representatives of this people and of this nation are no less guilty of the excesses of a few bad law enforcement officers. It means you and I are no less guilty of the worst violence of street rioters and looters. This is our people, like it or not. They're our people, and we're part of this people. And so what we see flickering across the television screen night after night is not the sin of those people over there. That is my sin. That's your sin. And if God's judgment falls upon this nation for breaking covenant... He's not going to pick and choose who suffers punishment. Why? Because every last one of us is no less equally guilty. We share in the corporate responsibility and the corporate guilt. And yet God opens a portal of opportunity. If my people who are called by my name. That is, if God's people recognize our shared sinfulness and our need for forgiveness, and if we recognize our national trauma as God's act of national judgment. Now, we saw that Solomon's prayer defined four aspects of repentance. First, pray. Secondly, call upon the Lord's name. Third, plead with God for mercy. And fourth, repent, turning from sin and to the Lord. And God, in His covenant... Reaffirms this prayer of Solomon's almost. Almost. Yes, God's people, repentant people, are to pray. They are to seek his face, which is uh, like calling upon his name, it means. Both of them mean we focus our full attention on Him. And we are to turn from our wicked ways. If they turn from their wicked ways, implying thereby that they turn from sin to the Lord. In all those points, it agree Solomon's prayer and God's covenant are in agreement. But there is one thing different one thing different between Solomon's prayer and God's covenant, one condition that human wisdom would not suggest nor willingly embrace, but which God considers absolutely essential. If my people, Humble themselves. This is the operative verb in the first place of prominence. Pray, seek, turn are all subordinate to humble yourself as the primary verb. Pray seek, turn, are sort of consequences in behavior for those who have humbled themselves. Now, the usual word for humble, shafal, for those writing notes, S-H-A-P-H-A-L, shafal, means to bow down. And you know, when we think of that, we picture someone, you know, like Solomon, approaching with the full consciousness of their personal dignity and their selfhood, yielding it before God in voluntary service. However, shafal is not the word that is used here. the hebrew word ana which appears here in the reflexive form kana k a n a kana is it's very rare in the old testament a, at large doesn't show up often in the old testament except in second chronicles and it appears 17 times in second chronicles So I'd say it's an important word in this book, an important word in this covenant. This was the quality that God most sought in his people as they teetered in the balance of judgment, but that he did not find. So off they go to Babylon. Originally, Cana, I mean, originally meaning like back in the Bronze Age or something like that. It meant to fold one's wings and thus to make oneself small. It's sort of like, you can sort of picture a dove, a ground dove or a grouse or something, trying to hide from enemies. And so it folds up its wings and sort of makes itself... They can actually flatten themselves against the ground, hoping you won't see them. That It'll just look like brush. And so that's the idea, is to, to fold one's wings and make one's, oneself small. That is to make yourself small before God. However... By this time by the time second chronicles was written kana had a more regular more common connotation the way it was usually used was it meant to be subdued or to be conquered to be conquered It is, Kana is to be overwhelmed and overpowered and crushed and broken before God. God expects His people, that's you and that's me, to come before His throne, not in our own proud self-dignity and willing service, but very small, overcome, overwhelmed, conquered, crushed, broken-hearted because of our sin in the sin of our people. And that is the first covenant condition God is looking for. And if he's going to forgive our sin and heal our land, that's what he has to see. back to the calligraphic mural of 2 Chronicles 7.14 in the sanctuary. If my people. A lot of church members have been asking me to uncover it, but I, as a spiritual leader before God, I have to, of course, ask why. Why do we want to see it there? Do we want to see it to remind ourselves to throw ourselves down before God in utter smallness, to confess our, our complicity, our complicity in the sins of our nation and to beg for His forgiveness for us all? Is that why we want it? Do we want to be subdued and broken before God, like Judah under the heel of Babylon? Do we want to feel the sting of guilt and exile far from the holy place of our God because we ourselves, as individuals and as a nation, have sinned before Him and violated His covenant? Is that why we want it there? Is that why we want to see it? Or do we want to pat ourselves on the shoulder? You know, for what good Christian people we are. You know, we aren't like those sinners over in that state or in that political party. You know? Look. We're such good, we even have it written on the apps of our sanctuary, you know, to remind us to pray that God will restore our land, that God will forgive what those other people are doing, and maybe strike them down, or at least get them unelected. Or maybe change their minds to be a little bit more Christian and moral. You know, moral, like us. We will nail down and confess sins. But in our minds, they're other people's sins. Because we know better than that. Jesus warned us about that kind of better-than-that attitude. He told a parable about a Pharisee and a known sinner. It's in Luke 18, starting at verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee stands and prays, standing by himself, Jesus says. That is, he is distancing himself from others so that their religious cooties won't rub off on him. He's distancing himself from others so he will not somehow pick up the taint of their sin. And he congratulates himself. Lord, oh, Lord, thank you. You know I reject the social unrest. I am disgusted by abortion and socialism and all those other horrible things liberals spout all the time. Thank you, my eyes have been opened and I'm not like them. Now, is the Pharisee just and justified in the sight of God? Of course not. Of course not. He wallows in contempt for others. Uh, Even if he's not seeing that that's what he's doing, that's what he's doing. He's wallowing in contempt for others, and and he's wallowing in self-congratulatory self-righteousness. God, I'm better than that. And it's the tax collector who knows he needs the grace of God who is humbled, he's conquered and broken before the righteousness of God. He's small and body and spirit before the Almighty, and he is the one who goes away forgiven and saved. Now, I'll be glad to uncover the Scripture over the platform, when I see the humility and the brokenheartedness that God is calling for. When we pretend to God's covenant promise, while at the same time we violate His terms in if unreal, without realizing it, but still being so in our self-righteousness, we are not going to receive the promise. We are, Instead, we're going to receive the punitive clause instead, because at the moment we think we're meeting the conditions, we're actually operating contrary to the conditions. That's not what I want to see, and I don't think that's what you want to see. And what happens is we reap condemnation and judgment upon our own heads whenever we use the covenant promise of God to vaunt ourselves over our fellow sinners as if we really were better than that. Now, this is a hard word, I know. I know it's a hard word. But Those of us, and I'm preaching to the to myself here as well. Those of us in evangelical and charismatic circles are sadly predisposed to pride. To spiritual pride. We really are. We know, you know, we know we're different from how we used to be you know i used to be like this and this and this and now god touched me and i'm not like that now i know i'm different than how i used to be but then i make the wrong inference that i'm somehow better than others who have not yet experienced that change if we're honest though if i'm honest when I came to Christ and He started working within me, and you know, what, you know what really happened? I exchanged an inventory of sins that I recognized for a fresh inventory of sins I don't recognize yet. <laughs> right? I'm still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. I just have a bunch of fresh sins that probably I don't recognize as being sin. Now, if I were to ask you, you could probably give me a whole list, right? And maybe one day we'll get to the point where we can be open and honest like that with one another for each other's betterment and healing and salvation. Most churches are not there yet. You see, we never cease needing grace. And grace never stops being grace. We live in troubled and troubling times when children are killed in their beds in random drive-by shootings, when babies are gunned down in the streets. Cocky young adults thoughtlessly spread the plague in crowded bars, you know, those, those dark, clo- enclosed spaces. While their grandparents gasp for life on ventilators in the nursing homes. Our whole culture is shot through with self-centered, self-serving pride, without the most basic consideration of others. I'm not telling you something you don't know there. But what I want you to understand is that is little different from the arrogance and the pride of the politicians and the leading citizens that led to the downfall and the deportation of Israel. When you read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, friends, that's our history too. We, at this point, we can't turn toward the temple and hope, as Solomon did, that the Almighty will hear our intercession. The temple burned for the last time almost 2,000 years ago. But even then, even then, God looked ahead then in Solomon's day, knowing what would happen to that temple, knowing what Israel would do, what Judah would do, and what would happen to that temple. God looked ahead and saw a dying form struggling for one more breath. They're on a cross outside the city wall of Jerusalem. God deigned to honor the sacrifices of the temple because he saw that one ultimate sacrifice. He honored the prayers of intercession at the temple because he heard that one ultimate dying prayer, Father, Forgive them. See, for Christ's sake, God covenanted with Solomon, He covenants with us to be a fountain of mercy for those who come to Him, bringing the sins of their fellows in humility and brokenness. You see, there's still hope for our nation There's hope for our world. There's always still hope. When God's people, when you and I, vanquished before His cross, fall to our knees confessing our corporate guilt, laying down not just our pride, but our very lives for the life of the world. Let's pray. We confess, almighty God, that we are proud people. We're even brash enough to be vain in our faith and righteousness and our own holiness compared to those people somewhere else. Oh Lord, Open our eyes to see who we really are before you. How we are them, those people we disdain, we are them, and break our hearts. Conquer us, overwhelm us, and break our hearts in humility. to pray with our whole minds and bodies and souls for our nation, for our people, and all the sins that we corporately do. And then, Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive our sin and heal our land. In Jesus' name, who died to make it possible and who rose to make it happen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.